Lord, we just thank you for your word and the way it sees into our lives. Lord, I just pray that you with us today as we examine these few short verses and all they contain. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, this is at the end of chapter 13, and it's quite different to the rest of the chapter, which is mostly all about parables. Um, but there's a lot of conflict in it. And so when we look at what the response is, um, uh, and here are the comments about here at the beginning of these verses, we just need to go back to time a little bit um, and look at what Jesus was doing earlier. And Jesus is pretty good at causing conflict. He doesn't sugarcoat his message to make it more palatable um, to people, to keep him out of trouble. And in the early part of this chapter, he's, held, he's healed people on the Sabbath, which is against the rules, but the right thing to do. And then he reverses the natural order of society by declaring that those who think they will be first into God's kingdom will in fact be last. He will have made both some friends and some enemies with this comment. Then Luke gives us these unusual few verses at the end of the chapter in which Jesus shares both his sorrow and his compassion for those who continually reject him. And he also makes it clear that despite warnings of death and danger, he has no intention of altering his actions. He is committed to carry out what God has asked him to do until his mission is complete, and he will carry it out with compassion, whether he's rejected or not. Now I found when I read this reading that compassion and commitment spoke to me very strongly in these verses and I think that these are two really important values. And value is also one of the things that we've been looking at this week in our exploration of faith. So it was top of my mind. Now commitment and compassion at times work together. Compassion for a cause can lead us to commit to helping change a situation. Anyway, there's a lot that can be said about these few verses, but those are the values I've chosen to look at. So let's take a quick look at the text. Now, the first thing we're confronted with in verse 31 is a warning from the Pharisees to Jesus. You'd better leave this place and go somewhere else, because Herod wants to kill you, they say. Well, it's rather an odd thing for the Pharisees to say, because so far they've not exactly been Jesus' hands. Why would they warn Jesus? Do they really care whether Herod kills Jesus or not? Bear in mind, the Pharisees had just rebuked Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, and Jesus had pushed back at them, making them look silly and heartless. He showed them up. Then Jesus' message that the first would be last in God's kingdom would have rattled them. Clearly, the Pharisees, as the religious elite, would have seen themselves as first, and Jesus had seriously downgraded them. Their motive, I think, is probably to move Jesus on so that he's out of their area because it's too much trouble. And so they're, they're speaking to him and warning him under the guise of concern. Also, it would be more likely that the Pharisees and Sadducees in Jerusalem could more effectively deal with Jesus. So these Pharisees went on both accounts. Anyway, Jesus' response to them is both bold and dangerous. Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. Given that Herod was the one who beheaded John the Baptist, calling him a fox would not have been a healthy thing to do. It was
was a very big insult really because if you think of what a fox is like, it's a fairly weak kind of predator. It's smaller than a dog, it sneaks about at night killing small things. But it's not the kind of predator that would fill you with any great fear unless you're perhaps a chicken or a rodent. Nobody says, oh, careful, look, up, look out for that fox, it might get you. It's not the same thing as being faced with a lion or a leopard or a puma. Um, and I can't imagine Herod would have been very pleased with that analogy. But Jesus is making it clear when he rebukes them that he will not stop what he's doing. The phrase that he says today, tomorrow, and on the third day is not alluding to the resurrection, although mentally, whenever you hear the word third day, that's where it kind of takes you. But it was a colloquial phrase that meant that he would keep going till it was complete. Today and then tomorrow and then when it's done. And in a way, I suppose the resurrection was when it was done, but that's the meaning of the phrase. Jesus knows what he's got to do, and he will not be diverted by any threats. Death by Herod doesn't scare him. He knows he's under the will of his father, and not to do what God has asked him to do is way worse than being killed by Herod at this point. He knows his mission will be fulfilled and will end in Jerusalem. And it struck me when David was talking last week about the temptation in the desert, that these Pharisees are tempting him in the same way that Satan did in the desert. And if you were here last week, you'd know what David had said about that. Um, Satan's temptations are designed to focus on personal needs and wants. And as David said last week, death is probably the greatest human fear. Here, the Pharisees were appealing to Jesus' human fear of pain and death to move him on. But Jesus reacted to them pretty much in the same way as he did against Satan in the desert. Just as Jesus rebuked Satan at that time, he rebukes the Pharisees now. Jesus is working in the will of his father. Herod and these Pharisees are no match for his true authority. Jesus' goal is to reach as many people as possible. They are his focus, they are what he cares about, and he's fully committed to them. They are the reason God sent his son into the world in the first place. So commitment is something really for us. Do the dirty work at times. We tend to be committed while things are easy, but the more difficult the task, the more it impinges on our lives the less we really feel truly committed to it. And it's pretty easy these days to uncommit and just SMS or email or Facebook or tweet our way out of things that have become too difficult or inconvenient our life. You don't even need to face people that you're uncommitting to. I actually was um, dumped once by some lunatic guy that I went out with, or he was trying to get me to go out with him, and um, I had caught him out on something and he wrote me this SMS saying that I'd been deleted. And Interesting, I've been deleted. But anyway, I'm deleted. <laughs> Even our doctors and dentists can ask to check we're still committed to turning up to our appointments. We're constantly asked to recommit to these appointments, and this could really only be because they get a lot of no shows. Our world is fast, our days are full, and our responsibilities are many. We are great at keeping ourselves very busy and our attention is claimed by so many things trying to divert us, it's hard to focus on what we should be doing. In fact, it's really hard not to get drawn in by these things. Sometimes I'll go to the email and send a message, to send a message, and then I'll see that deals direct have a really good deal. 
any mum and my mum to tell me about it. So I ended up shocking rather than sending the original email I went to send in the first place. So it's easy to just get down this track and you find that you know, you're diverted from something that's really important. And then you might forget to go back and actually do that at all. It's really hard to focus at times. And sometimes it's hard to work out which things are important and which things are not. And we also tend to get a little bit fearful of commitment. If we commit to something, we might miss out on something else. If we have to commit to something long term, we get a little bit edgy. Or if this, we don't know if it's going to hamper us in the long run because we don't know what else is coming up. And we don't know if this thing will get in the way of it. People who run events will tell you that there is a scramble of registrations at the last minute from people who have waited to commit to the event at the last minute. Maybe they forgot, but maybe they were just really waiting to commit in case there was a better offer. Another thing we can often do is commit too much. We like to do so many things, we're not often good at saying no, and when we're asked we overcommit, we spread ourselves thin, don't honour our commitments properly, and do not always prioritise well. I put my hand up, has been guilty of this. Severely guilty, in fact. And Jen and I have been reading a book called Boundaries. Sorry to put you out here, Jen, but we have. I don't know how far she's gotten through it, but I've managed, I've actually not managed to prioritise reading a book that will help me work out my priorities, priorities in my life. I'm only at chapter four, it's been well over a year since we bought it, maybe even two, I don't know. Anyway, it's important to prioritise all aspects of our lives so that we're really spending time on the things that are important to us. But the big trick to work out is what that is. And I think Jesus provides a good model for us. He focuses on what's truly important. What is important is what God wants him to do. When things come up to divert him, he doesn't let himself be diverted. If he is threatened, he keeps on his course. We mostly don't think of asking God what he wants us to do. We just do what we feel like we should do. And what he wants us to commit to. But I would suggest if he's put a fire in your belly about something, it's important to pray about that and see where it leads you. Because the odds are something on your heart and something on your mind, it's for a very good reason. Then we move to the last two verses of our reading, and Jesus' mood changes. It turns into a lament. He laments over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who, sent, who were sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jerusalem is a city, and physically the city can't kill anyone. Jerusalem was the centre of the universe for the people of Israel because it's where the temple was and it's where God lived in their midst. It's where the Jewish leaders had their power base. It should have been the most godly place on earth, but Jesus says it's the place that has rejected him the most and rejected all of those sent by God and stoned them. In fact, it will soon reject him and put him to death. Yet if we go back to his analogy of the hen and the chicks, despite continuous rejection, how does Jesus react? He reacts with great compassion. He wants to take people under his protection as a hen gathers chicks under her wings. It's a strange analogy because 
because it is so feminine. And Jesus clearly is a feminine. It's motherly, it's nurturing. And one doesn't often think of Jesus as being a hen. Think of Jesus as the lion of Judah and someone with great strength. But he was also a person with great nurturing ability and love and compassion. A hen is not known for its physical strength, and in fact it's quite fragile and vulnerable. Herod is the sly fox, and Jesus the protective mother hen. I quite like the analogy. I like that Jesus identifies with the feminine. And he's so compassionate. And compassion is it's a difficult word to define because it ranges from feelings of empathy and sympathy. But it also has lenience, mercy and benevolence as part of its definition. And I think actually in this case, Jesus' compassion is related strongly to his mercy and the mercy of God. He doesn't feel sorry for Jerusalem in a touchy-feely sense, but he does continue to show mercy to its people despite their many rejections. He's there waiting to gather his people under his wings when the people are ready to come to him. Such a picture of great love and mercy and, and mirrors the mercy that God has for his creation. But Jesus' compassion was active. If he couldn't change people's minds, he continued to have compassion for them. His compassion didn't depend upon their response. His desire is for all to be saved and come to a relationship with God. Often our compassion is dependent upon the response uh, shown by those we show compassion to. If you show mercy or compassion to someone who then comes their nose at you, do you feel inclined to continue to show them mercy? We mostly employ the once bitten twice shy approach if we don't get the response that we feel we should get from the person we've been magnanimous to and shown mercy and compassion to. So in this way, our compassion is mostly about a payback for ourselves. I was reading the Synod Weekly newsletter a week ago and Andrew Williams, the General Secretary of Synod, referred to Pope Francis' talk on Ash Wednesday 2015. And the Pope highlighted there the need to give up indifference to others, the Lent. The Pope said, indifference to our neighbour and to God also represents a real temptation to us as Christians. And he calls the phenomenon the globalisation of indifference. And he wrote, whenever our interior life becomes caught up with its own interests and concerns, there's no longer room for others, no place for the poor. God's voice is no longer heard. The quiet joy of his love is no longer felt and the desire to do, do good fades. We end up being incapable of feeling compassion at the outcry of the poor. We think for others pain and feeling the need to help them. This becomes someone else's responsibility and not our own. This made me think of the recent action um, that the, the people have had in the outcry against the government's decision to send babies back into detention at Nauru along with their families. Many stood up in active compassion. I imagine Jesus saying, Australia, Australia, you who reject those in need, you who fear the other, how often have I longed to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you are not willing. And for the most part, we are if we're totally honest, concerned with our own interests. We're wrapped up in our own lives and our own needs. And as the Pope points out, this is in opposition to our Christianity. The further we move away from reaching out to others, 
further we move away from God. As the poet said, and I love those words, his voice fails. His voice speaking through us becomes silent. Unless our compassion is active as Jesus was, nothing will ever change in our world. If we wish to follow Jesus, our message of God's love has to be more than words. There must be action. Our action needs to show mercy, forgiveness. It needs to nurture. It needs to stand up for what is right and true, despite any threats. It needs to get up out of its comfort zone, the place we mostly reside. And if we let him, God stretches every muscle in our minds and bodies. He wants us to grow in him. He wants our passion and our compassion to be directed towards those in need. He doesn't just want us here on a Sunday to between 9.30 and 10.30 and then afterwards at coffee at the Bauhaus. He wants us 24-7. So we've talked a little about commitment and compassion and how these are evident in Jesus' life. And the challenge for us, if we wish to follow Jesus, is how we translate that into our lives. If we look at how we spend our lives, we will see what's important to us. And we did that last week in the Learning Deeply About Our Faith course, actually. It was very enlightening. Maybe you're already actively standing up for those things that you are passionate about and spending time to make changes. Try rewording Jesus' lament, as I did earlier. What would Jesus lament over in Australia? What would he lament over in Sydney? What would he lament over in Ultimo? What would he lament over in your life? And what would he lament over in mine? It's a very interesting thing, and it's very confronting. And I'm sure he has lots to lament about, but Jesus is there with his wings waiting to gather us in anyway. Last week on the way home from morning tea, David told Paige she was gorgeous. I don't want to be gorgeous, says Paige. I was actually intrigued as to why she said this, as most children would enjoy being gorgeous. So I asked her, Paige, if you don't want to be gorgeous, then what do you want to be? Now without hesitation, she said, I want to be dangerous. That's a perfect answer, and it's a very pay answer, I have to say. Out of the mouths of children comes such wisdom at times. Jesus was dangerous. He did dangerous things. He lived a life that went against the tide of his society and showed compassion to those people society saw as outsiders. He was committed to God's course, a course that put him right up against the authorities and got him killed in the end. But Jesus thought God's people, his chicks, were worth it. I think Pay is right. I think it's more important to be dangerous than gorgeous. Mind you, I think she is both. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your message. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your compassion. We pray that as we read back through these verses that you will help us to learn more about you and more about what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.